0: Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Witschik.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare. I'm your host, Leah Witschik. Today, I'm thrilled to be sitting down with Zaina Kayet. Zaina is future strategist with SE Health a health and social impact enterprise with a major focus on creating a better future for aging adults in their homes and community. Zena is faculty of Singularity University Exponential Medicine Stream and is adjunct faculty in the Health Sector Strategy Stream at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Zena was previously the lead of Health System Innovation at Mars Discovery District, a health innovation hub in Toronto, Canada. In 2017, she was seconded to the Reshape Innovation Centre at Bradwood University Medical Centre in the Netherlands. Zena completed her PhD in diabetes research from the University of Toronto, followed by a career in strategy consulting, including as a principal in the healthcare practice of the Boston Consulting Group. She currently resides in Toronto with her husband and three children and is proficient in French and Arabic languages. Good morning, Zaina. How are you today? I'm great. Good morning. I'm so glad to have you here on Central Line Leadership in Healthcare. Um, I have been really interested in talking with you for quite a while since your name was passed on to me, because you are doing some really interesting work. Um, so I'm wondering if just to get us started, you can talk about uh, your life's journey so far. How did you get to this point?
0: So, we'll start with the end and then work back, query. Okay. So, um, my main role is as future strategist with St. Elizabeth Healthcare, SE Health, a national nonprofit social enterprise that uh, largely focuses on delivering care and services to help aging adults stay in the home of their choice for as long as possible. And it's a 112 year old organization. And I lead the Futures team, which is a, a separate cell that really keeps our eye on where. Aging is going, where healthcare is going, and where society is going. So we can start to design kind of next offerings and practices to meet people where they're going, instead of uh, what healthcare loves to do is, you know, continue to recreate and protect the past. Um, I, if you ever would have asked me at any point of my forty-seven years that if this is what I would see myself doing, I would say probably not. So, you know, I trained as a scientist in diabetes research. I did a PhD at University of Toronto. And then I went you know, to the business uh, on Bay Street in Toronto with the Boston Consulting Group. So it was kind of international consulting and strategy. And that's really where I learned how to solve really messy, messy problems in a fairly structured way. Uh, and then you know, through a series of different nonprofit engagements came back into Canadian healthcare in different roles. On the innovation space side tended to be more related to technology uh, and uh, did a year in the Netherlands on a secondment with their health system and learned a lot there about how to create the future of healthcare uh, and then came back to this role in 2018 here in Canada. So, So yeah interesting journey and the only thing I'll say if there was one common thread even going back to you know public school of what gave me a buzz and what kind of jobs I took. Uh, In hindsight, I would say, you know, I just love working on really, really complex, almost intractable problems uh, in an important space for society uh, with a team that I love working with. Like that's the common thing I'd say.
1: Pretty important. And when you say messy problems, can you give us an example of what that might be?
0: Yeah, so you know, we use the language messy, wicked problems, intractable problems. So these kind of multi-variable, uh, you know, highly interdependent things are going on and is the reason why uh, you know, an experience or something's just not working. So of course we can pretty much relate, that's climate change, that's our education system, that's our healthcare experience as in systems, that's poverty. Uh, those types of things. And so for me, that space uh, is um, the aging population, and, um, and our ability to meet them where their needs and expectations are, as they age and desire to uh, stay in the place of their choice.
1: What about the aging population resonates with you so much?
0: It's weird. I mean, again, I think it's more I'm attracted to the problem space or really, actually, it's more of an opportunity space than the topic. Like, it's not like I've had any personal experiences that, you know, you know, for example, you know, you meet people who've had a run in with cancer in their family or dementia or whatever. And then like that becomes their life's mission. It's not really that. I guess it's a bit of maybe I'm more attracted to the scope and the scale of the opportunity if you really innovate well in this space. Uh, One in, I guess what, six Canadians are over 65 right now. That will soon be one in five, one in four. That's never happened in the history of our species to have 20% of the population over 65. It's just never existed biologically. And therefore there's no social constructs for this type of a mix of population, uh, policy, products, services, care models, they're really not designed for this. Um, and so being able to be part of figuring out what is this new way we're going to be as a society when one in five of us are over 65, that's what I'm attracted to. And and my entry point just happened to be through healthcare, because that's the space I know well. But really, it's an aging um, problem space, not a healthcare problem space. It just happens to be that a lot of the needs uh, are in the healthcare space as you your body stops working you know as you age so
1: I'm so interested by what you're saying uh, around the fact that the numbers are such that as you mentioned we've never encountered this before as a species that statement really creates a different perspective and I really appreciate what you're saying around that it's not necessarily a problem it's an opportunity
0: Massive. I mean, I think that's the ultimate reframe. So, if you think about it, so the baby boomers are just kind of turning seventy now. So that's a bit of the driver of a lot of the momentum and energy in the space. If you look back, you know, every public system they ever touched, they changed. You know, they're the reason Mm -hmm. pediatricians (laughs) were created. They're the reason we have suburbs. They're the reason we have malls. They're the reason we have Toys R Us. And guess what's now going out of business (laughs) toys rs uh institutions of marriage they changed child rearing employment i mean you name it so what what do we think that they're not going to change every policy and construct and norm around you know the older adult like they're just getting into it so i think that is really to me opportunity i mean imagine when the boomers were born and we said oh what are we going to do about all these teenagers all of a sudden in society it's like, no. So, and then so the other aspect of that is, you know, now because of long jet, like life extension technologies, you know, we're staying alive. Like every year we're staying alive longer than we could have the year before. That's called longevity escape velocity. <laughs> so, you know, a baby born today is likely going to live to about 115. Wow. Okay. So imagine you say, Oh yeah, we're going to keep our policy of retirement age 65 because back when we made that policy, People died in five years, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, well, no, you're now alive a good eight thousand days after that magical age of sixty-five. That's twenty-one years. That's an entire stage of life mm-hmm. that didn't really exist. So, so that's kind of to me the opportunity. And I think if we think you know that this population is going to be a net you know tax taker, uh, and you know there's zero contribution uh, after they're no longer participating in our norm of the industrial economy called, you know, a full time job, uh, we got another thing coming. So I think that's, that's what gets me excited. And I think there's just a very early, early echoes of a conversation among a few folks in Canada about that reframe, Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: whereas other countries like they're already there. They're already going for the longevity economy.
1: Okay, so that's interesting that you're saying that Canada is maybe behind the curve a little bit. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a moment um, because I think that's a really interesting conversation. What I'm interested in hearing from you is what exactly is a futures strategist?
0: So I often get introduced as a futurist and I'm not that, right? So a futurist is like predicts the future, looks at signals and kind of pontificates based on a bunch of variables and inputs. That's not what I do. Um, I use the outputs of people who do that. So uh, a future strategist, you know, is really more of an applied futurist. So it's taking the insights, the knowledge, what we're seeing, signals, early, faint, you know, signs of something different in the water supply Uh, and usually that tends to be from around the world Um, uh, and then translates those into making some choices today uh, at an organization level because that's that's where i work i work for an organization Uh, so we can make some pretty important uh, bets or choices or investments of of what we might want to start to what direction we should go in And more importantly, where we should not focus anymore. Uh, And I think, you know, it was a luxury, I'd say, for most organizations, and organization could be at any level an entire country, a province, a system, an org, (laughs) whatever it is, a region. Um, It used to be a luxury to have, you know, once every five years step back and go, hmm, what's going on in the world? Let's do a three day workshop. You know, now you just, it has to be part of your everyday because the velocity, and the magnitude of uh, any org structure, whatever you are, your unit of analysis, the rate of change and the magnitude of stuff outside of your org, uh, it will always be faster than the rate of you have inside (laughs) to keep up with it. So you need to constantly understand where things are going so you can pretty quickly pivot. So I I just think this will be a normal role. Like in healthcare, if you look at the Renaissance, you know, all of a sudden we got obsessed with quality and then we built all this infrastructure for quality. We built agencies, everybody had a chief quality officer, you know, that kind of thing, KPIs. Then the next was innovation. Okay, now everybody has an innovation office, innovation team, chief innovation officer. And that's really around, you know, taking apart the old and putting it back together in new and better ways. Uh, The next will be this kind of futures thinking uh, is going to be pretty vital.
1: I'm interested in hearing then, uh, and we touched on this a moment ago, is where do you see Canada and our institutions and organizations, where are we at in terms of futures thinking?
0: I mean, obviously it depends on what context we're talking about. I think it's a little bit spotty uh, in, in multiple layers or levels, you know, sometimes one jurisdiction is way ahead in their thinking than one next door or one province versus another and then you know in some contexts, like on things like climate and next advanced technologies to replace petrol there are parts of canada that totally see it and they're moving in that direction and then others are still trying to protect the past and then same with healthcare. you know there are places that see an opportunity to really create you know a healthy society of the future based on the best thinking and knowledge we have today. And then others don't have that luxury. They're still, you know, trying to make sure people have access for God's sakes to good drinking water. You know what I mean? So I'd say it's, it's, it's patchy. I will say though, I'm not seeing a, I don't know if it's universal, but a bit of a shared vision of of the future in like the spaces, at least I'm in around either aging or healthcare uh, or the two together um, that everyone is like, believes in and is aligning all the ducks to meet Uh, that's missing because the discourse continues to be, you know, one on healthcare, all about today and cost, cost, cost beds, 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 you know, I need more budget. And then, uh, and then on aging, it's this kind of deficit mindset and language of, you know, all these services people are going to need, and how are we going to do this? And like terrible language, like silver tsunami. It's like, first of all, uh, it's not a surprise. Tsunami was a surprise. This is no surprise. We knew this for like seventy five years that <laughs> this was coming. And secondly, a tsunami has a very negative, you know, destructive metaphor to it. uh, and, uh, and that doesn't help, you know? So, so I, I, in general, I, in general, Canada gets criticized for not really having like, I don't know what the word is gusto, (laughs) you know, around a very aspirational vision and, you know, not in everything, like pick a couple bets and like go for it, you know? Um, and I'd say that's pretty consistent in this space.
1: What do you think contributes to that, that lack of shared vision, lack of gusto?
0: Oh, my God. That could be a whole podcast series.
1: <laughs> um, you know, I don't
0: know. Like, there's a few things. I think, again, one, because the dominant lens, particularly in the aging space, is healthcare. And for whatever reason, we've let this institution, which isn't even healthcare, it's more of a medicine institution, be the, like the place you go for solving aging. Uh, and really, it doesn't have that elevated role in any other p- systems we have. Uh, maybe a little bit in old age security, but that's a given. But, you know, like housing, uh, employment and the future of work and, you know, all these other parts of a good society. So, And then healthcare, you know, is just dominated by what we chose in the Canada Health Act to be legally required publicly insured services. Which is hospitals and doctors. So then you wonder why, you know, uh, when we all know health is created in the in the community, uh, and all your assets are dominantly in you know medical places, why there's a big gap. So I think that's a part of it. And then I think there's just another just general Canadian DNA of, I'll just say, kind of like a tolerance for um, status quo, if not even mediocrity. Um, just, you know, we just don't have that something in our DNA to, in our kind of national DNA, you know, to just go way above what is in front of us. Um, no, of course it's in pockets, but it's not the brand of the country. (laughs) Whereas there are other countries where this is their brand the Netherlands, Israel, to some extent, the United States, Singapore, uh, they just go for it. You know, we don't tend to do that
1: you mentioned about it it's just not part of our brand and for other countries it's just it's just what they do um i'm curious to hear if you have some thoughts around what it is in those other countries that is the catalyst for this
0: um i mean i think look, this is studied to death by scholars way more sophisticated (laughs) than me. Uh, You know, if I had to give, again, from my space of what I see as the example of that is in the healthcare and aging space, you know, if you look at a country like the Netherlands or a country like Israel, you know, Netherlands, this whole country is surrounded by, you know, big beasts like Germany right next to them and the UK on the other side, in France, nobody speaks their language. It's a very rare language in the world, uh, and it's below water at any day. It wasn't bad climate day, and the whole country's gone right. So when that's your context, you know, you just you're kind of born exploring, searching, and fighting to punch above your weight. And they totally have on every measure, right? You know, starting with the ships that sailed out, in the, you know, the the Dutch uh, East India Company and you know, look what just happened with Brexit. I was in the Netherlands when Brexit got went through. They jumped on relocating a bunch of assets that were EU-based in the UK and bid to get them over the Netherlands. And guess what? They won, you know? So the whole center of gravity is starting to shift. And this is tiny country, right? 17 million people. Nobody speaks their language. Um, and then, of course, Israel, there's books written about... Um, You know, this feistiness of this tiny country with no resources to speak of, or very little, and every country around them wants to decimate them. Um, You know, you are born fighting right from the womb, you know, uh, and pushing and punching way above your weight. And you really have the whole country aligned on a common agenda from an economic policy perspective. You know, so I think there's just things like that. So then you could argue, then in Canada, like maybe we just don't really have a burning platform. You know, we're quite resource rich. We don't have um, geopolitical controversy like some of the other places do. And it kind of works okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's good enough. So, I don't know. There's a little bit of all that going on. And then I think the federated model, it's hard to align on, a you know, to spread 34 million people across a big floppy geography you know, and in my world, like 10 really different healthcare systems, you just have no scale. Um, And I think all that kind of comes together. So the question is, do you push to the future off a burning platform, which is almost like a fear of, you know, you don't want things to be bad, like the examples I gave you, or do you have a common agenda based on an opportunity platform? You know, like, let's go after this. That's kind of like what a moonshot is, right? Or now it's, I guess it's a Mars shot. I don't know. Um, and that's more the space I like to be in. I like to be innovating from a place of opportunity instead of a place of fear and risk.
1: I would imagine, um, as you mentioned, for uh, some of these countries operating from that place of fear and risk, it, it seems to have worked for them. Um and at the same time, I would imagine that there is probably a much stronger place if you were operating from a, uh, that standpoint of opportunity. I'm curious to hear from you, how, how do you distinguish that? And how do you make that mindset shift? Is it possible to make it? Uh, you know, I really don't know the answer,
0: but I'd say it is quite hard, right? I think Like anybody, any part thing, any one of you, your listeners have been part of where you had to really suffer struggle and fight and plow. And then you kind of came out at the other end. And then the next time it happens, guess what? You've got all the muscle memory and off you go. That's kind of the history of some of those examples I just gave. Um, you know, once you've done it, then you've got a ton of grit and then nothing seems that hard to take on. Right. Um, when you don't have that kind of suffering, (laughs) you know, then what is it? What's going to be that motivator? Again, I think there are some of us who it's just in our DNA to just want to punch above, right? And want the best for everybody. And that's enough. And look, we find each other. That's our tribe. But it helps too, if there's both, to be honest. And you could argue in Canada, there is a bit of that. It's just the burning platform. The flame's not that hot. You know, it's like, yeah, we know about climate change eventually, (laughs) or, you know, we know our healthcare system's unsustainable, but, you know, like, it's not like tomorrow it's all going to go away. And, and then that's where you get your challenges of all the other systemic problems of, you know, political cycles and annual budgets and just the way we hire and promote people, um, it, there's really no consequence. Put it this way, you're much more rewarded for executing on a current business model and doing that well without screwing up uh, than uh, waking up every day and trying to blow up that business model to create the future, right? There's just not really an incentive pathway for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. And that is so interesting t- to me. So, I, I mean, in the work that you're doing, what is some of the biggest, or what are some of the biggest barriers that you're, you're facing or the pushback that you're facing?
0: I mean, I would say, um, so I'll just quickly summarize examples of some of the, the futures we're working on. So we have a portfolio of futures and, um, it's a mix of, you know, going after an opportunity to create that future just because the moons are aligning uh, or, you know, we're just, we're designing, we're going to go for it, even if the moons are in line. So one is obviously the future of home healthcare. Uh, the home will be the center, uh, and the locus of almost all healthcare going forward. Uh, and that's how it started by the way, way back before. Um, and so that's the vision we're working with. Uh, and so we've got a few experiments we're working on to kind of, Figure that out. And that's both care models, but also, of course, business models, and there's a bunch of technology in there, and payment innovation, and policy innovation. The second is the future of how older adults live. So, housing, uh, built environment, um, villages, kind of the whole, um, uh, you know, urban structure or suburban structure. Uh, and, and, you know, and then all of the other systems that integrate into the physical built environment like healthcare or uh, social support, et cetera. So new models of senior living is another big future. And the third we're looking at is the health workforce of the future, um, particularly around allied health, nursing, et cetera. So, um, so as we go to do that, some of them that are more regulated and where uh, government agencies have much more of a lever in the experience of people and their families, such as home health care, uh, tons of barriers, but it's it's not like people are deciding, oh, I'm going to put up a barrier to the future. Like it's not a deliberate, it's just what it is. The infrastructure is designed to squeeze out anything different or foreign or new. It's like antibodies <laughs> come out and neutralize You know, and that's because it was designed that way. We put all the controls and systems to optimize whatever's being implemented today um, for all the right reasons. You know, it's just that's the problem. It doesn't create any buffer to challenge and say, hmm, that was designed for this period of time. Why are we still doing it 100 years later? Uh, Because it's very difficult to dismantle um, a whole series of institutions, systems, policies, rules, techniques. Technology, you name it, you know. Uh, so that's probably the biggest challenge there is um, to do something that on paper and everyone knows is the best thing for patients, families and health workers. The amount of system change you have to do to allow that to emerge is 10x the amount of work. Um, and, and who's geared up to do that? We're not my team's not like, You know what I mean? Like we don't run the system. So it's really hard. Then you could see why almost everything doesn't really ever get done and implemented. Uh, Too many interdependencies.
1: How do you stay optimistic in the midst of all of this?
0: Well, that's a great question. Um, I can't say I am every day, but uh, you kind of have to be to do this work, right? Because if you're not it'll be done on the day you start, right? If you start from a place of fear or pessimism, uh, that'll just be so obvious in how you work and how you interact. So you have to believe that there's a better way at the end of this. And then uh, that's your starting point, you know? Um, And so I don't know. I don't think I've told myself to be optimistic. I think it's kind of like once I always say, once you see the future, you can't unsee it. So as long as you know where you're going, then nothing can really stop your mind from seeing it. It's just getting there is a whole bunch of detours all the time. And that's the grit of this work. And I think the beauty of you know, Canada being a bit behind on you know, creating for the future is other places already are there. So that's the other thing that anchors me is like, I see it in action in Japan, uh, in Israel in Singapore, in pockets of Australia and Europe. So it's not a concept. You know what I mean? Like it's really happening. So at least I know this actually will work in the field so that it's a little bit easier to do your work here because you've got others you can at least borrow and steal and emulate from.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I would imagine having those models to pull from is somewhat reassuring yes. in that you can kind of know that you're on the right track.
0: And you can, you know, that's the beauty of Canada often being late is you don't need to relearn all of the mistakes others already went through who are pioneers. You you short circuit a lot. And that's a great thing. It's just those of us who are restless, (laughs) waiting for, you know, a better way to do things. It's just frustrating while we're waiting, you know, but it it does end up being kind of a good thing in, in some ways.
1: Yeah, I hear that. And you said something that really struck me about, you know, the locus of healthcare will be the home. And you mentioned that that's how it all started. And I think what, what that got me thinking about is COVID. And of course, you know, all the outbreaks that we've seen and experienced in our long-term care centers, and our assist- assisted living facilities. I'm curious to know, how has COVID perhaps changed or impacted the work that you're doing? Okay, short answer, massively. Um,
0: I think bigger picture, if you think about it, my CEO said this recently, uh, I forget she was on some session with Andre Picard, you know, this is the time where home is the place everybody was told to be right now for everything, (laughs) for school, for shopping, for celebrating Thanksgiving uh, and for healthcare. Um, so it, you know, that alone is a pretty massive change in, uh, you know, our context pretty much overnight. And then you add to that, uh, that this COVID thing is, you know, a healthcare problem at the end of the day, it's a healthcare problem that brought the whole world to its knees. And the solution out of it is a healthcare solution right, between testing and tracing and vaccination and what have you and, and curative therapies. And so we're right in the middle of that too. We're part of the solution to get us out of it. Uh, and this, this, there's a new variable in the, you know, the, um, the calculus that both a patient will make and a clinician when choosing a channel to deliver services, which is the risk of personal contact that never really was a factor that affects quality, risk, safety, and most importantly, people's experience. Um, And now it is a major factor. Like, whereas before the, you know, we've always had this framework in healthcare of the quadruple aim, right? That in theory, these are four equal legs of a stool that should be factored in, in any choices about, you know, what you do or don't do. Of course, quality of the care, Uh, uh, quality of the experience for the patient quality of the experience for the staff and cost but really cost and quality of care have been the most important legs it's like the other two we put them there they look really nice on a slide but we don't ever really shift our decision making of what we will or won't do based on the experience of the patient and their family uh, and what matters to them or the experience it does for the staff and the healthcare workers. Like those become extra factors. Well, all of a sudden, (laughs) those two are like front and center because they will not accept a level of risk around contact, you know, the way they might've before. So, and I don't think that's going to go away coming out of this. I think it's kind of here to stay. Uh, so yeah, I think it's forever put us on a new trajectory, which, um, You know, despite the devastation of this illness, um, you know, if if something good comes out of it because of that, that we give people and their families a lot more choice about how and where they'll receive services, uh, you know, I think that will net be better for a lot of us in the long run.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you share all that. I was talking to someone the other day who was talking about how we still maintain that status quo of doing to our elderly um, that you know we are still in a mindset of um, doing things to them uh, and we like to almost code it with a belief that we're actually asking them what is best for them. Um, and I'm curious to hear what you think about that.
0: Yeah, a couple kind of, Ideas are emerging around this, you know, doing two versus doing uh, two or four versus doing with, and then the next layer on the hierarchy is that, you know, they're leading and we're just supporting actors behind the scene. Um, So there's that trajectory that's happening. I think different patients and families themselves have a different comfort level with that role. So it's not universal. Doing two or four isn't necessarily a bad thing if that's what makes the most sense for the situation. So for example, do I want to do with my brain surgery to remove a tumor? No, thank you. I will abscond and outsource my agency. Thank you very much to some great experts, right? Um, The recovery after that brain surgery, where it happens, how it happens, the role that I might have in my own recovery, my family, you know, There, it changes now. There might be some more joint decision-making, you know, or maybe I'll run with it and you just support me because I feel like I can do it. So I think that's the transition. And I think overall, I would call that just segmentation. Like we we love segments of one in healthcare, like that everybody has to get what works for the average, which means nobody's needs get met. (laughs) Right, like the average is one point on the bell curve, which means every other point on the curve is not getting their needs met. So, that's that's the new skill set, and I'll just give you a couple examples of of what's happening there in the Netherlands. You know, they really want to jump on this uh, reframe, and you know, when they did their last budget two years ago, I want to say two thousand eighteen, uh, with the new government coming in, they set a goal by twenty twenty two. 50% of every dollar they spend on healthcare that's 95 billion euros on a population of 17 million 50% of every dollar can only be given out allocated out if the decision to use that resource whatever it is was based on joint decision making okay 50% i would say in canada we're like 0.1% i don't know i don't have the data but that's my gut feeling so so that's an example of a way you can boldly go after the family and patients our partners in healthcare is put your money where your mouth is. And just the only other one I'll just throw out there to provoke, there is a small course. So just like the word senior, like I don't say that word, right? It's, it's, it carries a lot of weight and baggage and people don't like it. So we're banning it. We're eliminating it from our lexicon. Um. The other word people are talking about is the word care. Care is, carries with it 150-year medical baggage of doing two and four. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? So that's really fascinating uh, where this is going to go. And I'll tell you again, when the boomers are themselves experiencing healthcare services, they will not accept being told what's going to be done to them uh, with no other choice, you know, Um, and that's going to be a reckoning.
1: There's a couple of things that really uh, I appreciate you bringing forward. One is the power of language and how the language we choose to use does come with baggage. It does come with connotations. It comes with all of those pieces. And so to, to make deliberate choices around how do we Change our language to uh, maybe not eliminate that baggage because the baggage is always going to be there, but to to um, reframe how we're how we're speaking about things. Um, the other thing that I really appreciate in what you're saying is that this idea of partnership being almost what occurs to me almost on a spectrum, as you mentioned, you, you know, the brain surgeon example is a perfect one, um, and how the baby boomers, it's their spectrum is going to be front of mind for them, uh, and that this will be a big shift in how we as healthcare professionals need to respond. So, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on how a healthcare professional in in sort of any designation, how do they figure out what that person wants and needs?
0: I mean, to me, this isn't like rocket science. If you think about other services you experience in your life where there's some other kind of professional entity that knows a little bit better about that than you do, right? So, um, you know, let's say education, right? Again, we have a largely classroom model 1 to 30, pretty old school but within that, and then of course when you look at alternative models of education that are exploding around the world, uh, including publicly funded ones, um, you know no teacher would say, you know what? Uh, I'm just gonna do the way I do it and uh, you know which optimizes learning for a very, <laughs> You know, narrow sliver of, and we're, you know, we're going to put every person who's eight years old in the same segment, you know? Um, so, you know, a, a good teacher is more of a, to me, a coach of learning and they figure out who you are, what you're about and what makes sense for you, you know, same with, you know, even like when you're buying stuff, right? You have a choice, whether it's with Walmart or your local restaurant or whatever, you know, do you want to pick it up? Do you want it delivered? Do you want to go and shop? Do you want this? Do You want to do it yourself and build it at home? You know, um, how do you want to pay? <laughs> uh, how do you want to give feedback? Um, so, I think it's just that—it's just creating channels and choice in a way that's scalable. Of course, that's always the trade-off, but it can be done, right? Like, I mean, there are entire house systems, like say Kaiser Permanente. Uh, which is, you know, a 12 million person health system based in California, about the size of Ontario. Um, they have, I think now the last count, 12 different channels by which uh, any patient can interact with this healthcare system. They're seamless, they're integrated, and you choose. If this week you want to be on the phone, it's on the phone. If tomorrow you want to text, you text. If you want an in-person visit, you go do an in-person visit, you know, like you decide, you decide how you want to get your data or if you don't want to get your data. Um, So I think it's just being able to just, it just, it's kind of intuitive, like just what makes sense for your goals and my professional opinion of, you know, uh, what you need to be successful in those goals, right? right? And then you got to make it work. And so again, there are pockets that are doing this, but our systems are not designed to allow for that. And that's, that's why they don't, you know, the,
1: the pockets don't scale. That's so fascinating. Um, And what I hear in that is, uh is two pieces. One is meeting people where they're at. Um, and the reason why that resonates so much for me is because that's, fundamental to the work that I do as a coach is meeting people where they're at and the other piece is choice, giving people choice and recognizing that uh, choice doesn't mean you get one choice and then you're stuck with that choice forever. It means from day to day that that choice may be different. It may shift. It may evolve.
0: And that's probably like what you do as a coach or even as a friend. Like, sure. Ideally, every time I want to interact with my bestest friend, We're in person together, but that's not gonna work for a lot of reasons right now or even ever. So we decide when is a text enough? (laughs) When is a phone call enough? When is a letter the right thing? You know, like you just kind of figure out what makes sense for what's possible and what people want, right? And yet in healthcare, I don't know, like we just, we go retort back to this kind of common denominator that was the only option 30, 40 years ago, and yet we keep it, you know, like even using the words telemedicine. That's the language people are using to describe, in my opinion, what is really alternative channels to access care. But tele, we locked into the lexicon because at the time we came up with this word, the only tool available was called the telephone. Right. And so like when you do that, your brain is locked in. Oh, that means virtual care. No, it doesn't mean virtual care. It just means that you don't need to be in the same time and place for good care to be exchanged. Um, Does it have to go by a telephone? No, (laughs) but you know, and that's the same what happened with the fax machine. Like at the time, the only tool to share information across settings or buildings was a fax other than mail, you know, so we put it into law that the only way information can be shared across people who are involved in your circle of care is through fax machine. And it's 2021. And that is still the only way we transmit data across people in the circle of care.
1: Wow. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I think wow is the right word for it. Yeah. So, from your perspective, how how do we health as healthcare professionals and leaders? How do we cultivate this futures thinking?
0: So, there's a few ways, and it depends a bit of who you are and um, your starting point, and just what context you're in. So, just from a few of the tribe that I've kind of interacted with and work with or, or mentored or whatever, you know, there's just some people you know them right. It's just in their DNA to want to create the future. So no problem for those people. I just say, go find yourself a space and a place that will create the conditions to allow you to do that stuff. The worst, there's a poem called the The dream deferred. I always think about that poem where, you know, you're that person who wants to always push the boundaries and create the new, but you're in a context that's stifling you and you, you can't get out, you know, you put in 20 years of training and you, you know, you thought your dream job would be X and, you know, you, you feel kind of numb inside, but so that's one. And, and I think there are tons of opportunities now um, because, you know, healthcare is 12% of our GDP. Uh, it's the highest in demand workforce right now. <laughs> you have the luxury of choice. I think for others who, uh, you know, are more in the, that, you know, the they influence decision-making They've got access to resources, and they're uncomfortable with the status quo. Like, they just want things to be better. Uh, I think there could be some training and access you get to futures thinking that is not that complicated, uh, and it'll just be another tool in your toolkit. You know, you know, you need to know quality improvement, you need to know innovation, and you need to know futures thinking. And then it's a portfolio. And my general view is everybody who works in healthcare in general, at least. 10% of your time should be protected to work on creating the future. Because um, if you don't keep a little bit of a toe in <laughs> there, uh, the other stuff, the day to day will, there'll be no end to how much of your time that will demand, right? Like it never ends. We never quality improve to perfection, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's kind of what I encourage people to do. And and again, this futures type work is becoming quite mainstream. I'd say um, the training, the skill sets, whether it's formal training uh, or just being involved in a big futures project at, a, at your org. So I think it's going to, it's going to finally seep into the water supply.
1: I love what you're saying about devoting time. Um, and you mentioned 10% of your time to actual futures thinking, because I think, Uh, it's so easy. And I hear this every single day from people that I work with to get into a routine and a habit of just responding to the fires and, you know, being in that constant state of um, responsiveness um, versus being proactive and, and taking the time and the energy and the thought process that's required to, to shift out of that place of putting out fires to a place of, um, creating something new. And and you have no
0: choice, right? I mean, imagine if Shell Oil didn't, you know, what would it be now, 30 years ago, already know, like at some point we will not be able to keep taking old sunlight out of the ground (laughs) in the form of oil. Uh, and they started their futures program to anticipate that. And guess what their announcement was? What, two weeks ago, they're fully phasing out petrol you know by 20 I forget when but like so whether it's that long of a time frame or not but like the 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 one known we have no matter what industry or system or context is they all go through a mutation and a renewal that's just known right so it's not like it's a surprise (laughs) so would you rather be driving that bus or like waiting at the bus station and the bus goes by you know I think practically though, I'll, I know a lot of health workers uh, tell me like, yeah, but my org, like we're putting out fires, you know, which I totally get. So are we, so sometimes you're not going to get that 10% space or 20%, whatever it is in the place that you spend most of your time. Like most people work in an org uh, or they could work alone, but their, their alone work is still their core. Like they're seeing clients or whatever they're doing every day, like you, like a coach or whatever, So then what you got to do is have the side hustle. That's your strategy. You know, uh, like a lot of clinicians I meet, they do a day a week with a startup. Or, you know, I have one person who's a fellow on my team. So she does a day a week with my team to hang out in the future. But it doesn't have to be your full time. And it doesn't have to be with the same thing you do every day. So that's a way to feed that and get some skill set, get some experience, and frankly, get a lot of energy. And sometimes that day a week you do, you know, in your side hustle, maybe you start a podcast, maybe, I don't know what, you know, that will give you enough energy to make the four days, which is, you know, optimizing the current worth it. Uh, And that's the best of both worlds, if you can do that, because the four days tend to pay your bills too. (laughs) Your side hustle often is not going to be your revenue generating. Um, but it, it's your energy creating, and it makes you feel like your obligation to make the world better is being, you know, you're meeting that obligation. So that's another way to do it.
1: Mm, I love that thought. Um, my last question is for you What would be your dream for healthcare?
0: Oh, man. You know, I've got a few normative views <laughs> of my dream. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, I would love for us to be at a point, you know, if you think of a Maslow's hierarchy where we're not using so much energy, just figuring out how to keep putting resources in to sick care, because if, you know, if the, if the metaphor was like, you've got this bucket, your goal is to keep it full of water. There's a huge hole at the bottom, which is sick care. So, you know, responding and treating and fixing and, you know, as we stay alive longer and longer, there's no question that hole is just going to keep probably growing, right? That's the nature of humanity. Uh, and then your job is just to keep adding more water to the top, which is just fighting it out with policymakers to get your sector to get its budget increased, you know, uh, versus if if we really, so that's a pathogenesis model of healthcare, you know, and then like this, you know, movement, which, you know, started, I think, in Spain and is finally coming back to the world of salutogenesis, which is really a health creation <laughs> mindset where you really, your KPIs, your goals, your targets are around, you know, delaying for as long as possible any reliance on a sick care system. Um, to me, I would love that because then we can focus all our energy on amazing new experiences care models, business models for salutogenesis instead of what sucks up all the oxygen, the research dollars, the policy, the headlines is continuing to fix sick care, which is great. I mean, we should push the boundaries. Yes, we should do great cancer surgery. And yes, we should figure out dementia. Like, yes, but wow, does it get really interesting if you're now mashing up housing and libraries, you know, and the banks are involved because they're creating new wealth products as people age, you know, and, um, and you know, and all of our strip malls that are abandoned now become places for, you know, people to convene. I don't know, you know, <laughs> so that's, that's my vision. And again, there are pockets that that's where they're at because they're not as obsessed about a sick care system um, and, and then, you know, then you're, I just think it's just a funner way to live and push the boundaries, uh, instead of, you know, keeping, uh, filling up the, the bucket of water that keeps emptying.
1: Oh, that's beautifully said. Um, now you've given me so much to think about, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and, and to share your wisdom and your thoughts and also your enthusiasm. Um, it, in talking to you, I get more and more excited for the future and what it can be. Uh, So thank you so much. And I would really love to maybe have another conversation with you down the road.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line, leadership in healthcare. Also, if you'd like what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure
1: to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to get to know you on social media. So check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.